Thank you, Andy. <clears throat> you now, it's so wonderful to see the riches here with us and to worship with you all this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is James Walden. I'm one of the elders here with Andy. <clears throat> and it's my privilege to open the Word with you this morning. So if you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 131. We're making our way slowly through the Psalms of Ascent. <clears throat> We've got a few more to go before we wrap up. Psalm 131. It will also be on the screen for your convenience. <clears throat> <clears throat> a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. This morning's sermon is titled, Serenity Now. Uh, not really, but that would be a great title for it. Um, for those of you who are familiar with Frank Costanza, uh, this psalm is, a, I, th I think, a, a mighty psalm. It's short, but it is weighty. It is a word of wisdom for the wise. You know, it's a word we really need. I think these last three years now that we've been living in the post-apocalyptic COVID world, um, we have lived, you and I, outside of our box. We have lived outside of what counselors call your window of tolerance, right? When you're hyper-aroused, you're anxious, fretful, you're in fight-or-flight mode. For three years, our culture has been in fight-or-flight mode, which means we have a very diminished capacity for nuanced thought, which means lots of arguments, lots of anger, lots of frustration. Or you're hypo-aroused and you're in freeze mode, you just shut down, right? That's where we've been, and this, is, this psalm's calling us to calm and quiet ourselves, that our soul would be like a weaned child within us. But here's the irony. We, we grow discontent with our limits. As, as creatures, we have very creaturely finite limits, and we grow discontent of living in those limits, and so we stretch beyond those limits. We strain, and then we find ourselves anxious, fight or flight, freeze, because we're living outside of our creaturely bounds. We've been doing it for a long time, and it's exhausting. It's frustrating. It's disorienting. We live in this, this outside-of-the-box daily life. I mean, think about it. During COVID, how many of you in this room are epidemiologists? Raise your hand. None. Okay. We are all experts on COVID these last three years because we Googled it. Like, we found out how COVID really works, what, what the efficacy of masks and vaccinations. We're all experts. We're living well outside of our bounds of expertise, right? 
What's going on right now in Ukraine? What's going to happen with Russia? Here's the answer. None of us know. We're not going to figure it out. We're not going to solve it. But we don't like that. So we live outside of our bounds, outside of our limits. Even with our own politics, we're confused and we, we, we expect to know everything because we listen to a guy on Twitter who said this. You know, it's, it's, it's been so funny to hear so many evangelicals talk so confidently about things like the deep state, which by definition means you know nothing about it. Right? Unless you're part of it. So, we, we, all of this, we've, just, we've lived well outside of our bounds, and it's been crazy-making and exhausting. We are living outside of our window of tolerance, and I feel like our window of tolerance, perhaps collectively, is shrinking. Now, this psalm is an antidote to that, but I have to warn you, I preach it here as a hypocrite. I am truly the chief of sinners in this room when it comes to living as a weaned child with its mother. I am fretful, anxious, frustrated, living well outside my bounds routinely. Limits are not my thing. I'm not good at them. I don't honor them often. And so I stand here recognizing the fact that I'm the last person in many ways who should be conveying the wisdom of Psalm 131, a psalm I'm still having to submit myself to over and over again. In fact, it's so, it's so evident in me that I had a coach, and he said, James, I want you to study. You've heard me mention this before if you've been around. I want you to study and reflect on this word. It's a German word, Gelesenheit comes from the Anabaptist tradition. It's a wonderful word because on the one hand, it speaks to something all of our hearts in this room long for. Tranquility is the English translation. Or serenity. Ah, oh, doesn't that sound nice? Serenity now. But it also carries another nuance that no English word translates. Not only does it entail serenity, it entails surrender. Submission obedience, yielding. We don't like that part so much. <laughs> but here's the great irony. There is no serenity without surrender. There is no peace without submission. And so would you pray with me and for me as we seek to dive into a text that calls us to submission and calls us to serenity in that submission. Heavenly Father, I confess that I need your, your grace. I always do, but I especially do this morning, Lord. Please, despite my own failures in this area, and my own hypocrisy, Lord, grant me grace to speak what is true and right. And may I, Lord, even now, be weaned off of myself. Lord, and rest gently on your chest. And may we all, Lord, wean ourselves, calm and quiet our souls before you now as we reflect on your word to us this morning. 
It's through Jesus Christ who makes this word penetrate even to our hearts, in whom we hope and pray. Amen. All right. We all want this serenity. We all want this placid state of calm. But there's barriers to it. And the primary barrier this psalm addresses is our arrogance. We don't like our limits. We want to live outside of our limits. Arrogantly so, we want to be, as Martha said, our own gods. And then we find out being our own god is a lot of work and really hard, and we're not good at it, and we get really frustrated and overwhelmed. Our own arrogance is the primary barrier to rest. And so what David lists here, and it's so funny, David should say this, David learned. David was not always obedient here. David was a hypocrite many times. David did lift his eyes haughtily. He looked at things he should not have. He did raise his heart too high. He thought he was above the law at points. But here, here's a David who is a, a chastened David, a humble David. I have learned. And he prays, I think, not just piously, but soberly and honestly, Lord, I have not lifted up my eyes too high. My heart is not lifted up. So often these two things are paired together in the Scriptures, the raising of the heart and the lifting of the eyes. The ESV fills in the word too high, but to lift one's eyes simply means to have haughty eyes. It's filled in, uh, with Scriptures filled with these references, a dual reference to haughty eyes and haughty heart. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, Proverbs says, is sin. Or Psalm 101 says, whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. God says, I will not put up with it. It goes against the grain of the universe. You will get splinters if you live with a haughty heart and eyes too high lifted up. Or another familiar proverb, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. We're here on the screen from Proverbs 30. There are those, how lofty are their eyes. Same exact words that in our psalm. How high their eyelids lift. <laughs> Wide-eyed. Their eyes are bigger than any human appetite could consume. Big eyes for big ambitions. Jesus reflected on this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye, rather, the lamp of the soul. Just like haughty eyes and arrogant heart are the lamp of the wicked. They're set on bad things. Jesus says the eye is the, is, is the lamp of the, of the body, of the soul. And so if the eye is unhealthy, if it's sick, if it's looking on the wrong things, the whole, the whole inner interior life is dark. But if, if your eye is healthy, then the whole inner world is lit up and bright. So the question is, what are our eyes set on? What are we setting our eyes on currently? It's a question of ambition, which is the whole, the whole concern of verse 1 is ambition. As David goes on to say, after addressing our lofty hearts, our lofty eyes, I do not occupy myself with things too great. Literally, I don't walk in great things. 
I don't concern myself with things that as a mere creature are not my domain in the limits of my existence. I'm content to just trust God. I don't know what's going to happen with Ukraine. I don't know what's going to happen with... I don't know. God is sovereign. I can rest. This idea of lifting our of selfish ambition, of, 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 of concerning ourselves with great things reminds me of what Jeremiah said to his disciple Baruch. He says, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. It's like a Yodaism. Do you seek great things? Seek them not. Do you seek th- great things for God? By all means. Do you seek great things for yourself? Don't do it. Don't do it. That's what he says. What do you guys think of this quote? This is from the, from the Scottish pastor, Robert McShane. Some of you have used his year long, read the Bible through the year plan. He, he said this, I always, it's always been my aim and it is my prayer now to have no plan as regards myself. This is so un-American. Well assured as I am that the place where the Savior sees proper to place me must ever be the best place for me. I remember when I was in Dr. Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson's office one week. This was years ago when he was at First Pres here in Columbia. And I asked him a typical, you know, this was a, such a sophomore question, but I was, I was like a freshman in ministry. So I, I, I went up to Dr. Ferguson and I asked him, Dr. Ferguson, I hear all these pastors talking about their 10-year plan. What is your 10-year plan for First Pres? And he laughed at me. <laughs> it's a 10-year plan. It's like, what is with you Americans and your 10-year plans? Good luck with your 10-year plan. And he looked and he corrected and chastened me and said, I trust in the sovereignty of God. How about you? I was like, wow, that was a good rebuke. (laughs) So often we're concerned about pursuing our calling and our vocation. What what is God calling me to do in the next five years, the next ten years? We don't know. Nobody does. The question isn't, what is my vocation? What's God calling to me long term? The question that the psalmist is concerned with is, Are you obedient today? Don't seek your vocation so much as seek to be obedient here and now. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this psalm, commenting on this verse. He said, many through wishing to be great have failed to be good. What a tragedy. So many seeking to be great have failed to be good. My wife and I are watching The Dropout, this sort of dramatized version of the podcast about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Are you guys familiar with this story? So for for, for Elizabeth Holmes, it was all window dressing. It was all show, no substance. And she's really good at selling it. I mean, she raised hundreds of millions, if not billion, a billion plus dollars. Um, And it was all a smokescreen. She sought to be great and neglected to be good. And it's a tragedy. And the sad thing is this isn't unique to the world. We see it in the church. We seek, you see ministry leaders pursuing things like fame 
to be great in the eyes of the world. We even call them celebrity pastors shaped by this culture. But it's all window dressing. It's all a farce. And in seeking to be great, we fail to be good. Don't seek to be great. Seek to be good. And if you are good, you will be great in the kingdom of heaven. The, sec- the second thing he lists here, I, I, don't, I don't occupy myself with things too great or things too marvelous, too wonderful, too beyond my comprehension. Like things that I just, I cannot comprehend. Now, sometimes you might think of like great theological conundrums. Like I want to understand the Trinity or something. I doubt many of us are wondering about great theological conundrums day to day. That's probably not our temptation to like, I'm going to be the expert on the Trinity today. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to solve that problem. Um, More mundane things I think David has in mind. I'll tell you one that occurred to me as I was reflecting on this psalm. One thing that is too marvelous, too great for me to occupy myself with, that I completely occupy myself with, is tomorrow. Do you know Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. That's, That's above your pay grade. You worry about today. Tomorrow is enough concerns of its own. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Tomorrow is in the hands of God. Don't try to take them out of the hands of God into your own. You worry about today. But how often am I preoccupied with tomorrow? And I'm failed to be present in the present because I'm worrying about tomorrow. So rather than a weaned child, I'm fidgety and agitated and concerned and not at all calm and present. I think part, part, I wonder part of what David was thinking of when he thought, I don't occupy myself with things too marvelous, was the question you and I often ask when hard things come our way. Why? Why is this happening to me? Why did David get this lung disease? Why? We don't always know. Like, we rarely, in fact, know the answer. Are we content to trust God. A God whose ways are inscrutable, but His character is not inscrutable. His character is good, and He's shown Himself good. Are we content to trust His goodness when His ways are inscrutable? To submit to Him. 17th century theologian named David Dixon wrote wrote this, the humble man is content to be handled and dealt with as the Lord pleases. The humble man is content to be handled and dealt with as the Lord pleases. Are we content to be handled? In our sadness and grief, in our depression, in our frustration, are we able to wean ourselves in trust of God, to be content that even these hard things come from the hand of our Father. And though we don't understand them, He is trustworthy. He is good. And we can hope in Him, even in severe trial, especially in severe trial. 
That's exactly what Peter says to do on the screen from 1 Peter, writing to churches that are suffering. These churches are hurting. And yet he says this in the context of speaking to leaders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, leaders and non-leaders in the church, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but I do not want to be opposed to omnipotence. That's not a battle I'm going to win. (laughs) If I push back on God, I'm not going to move that wall. So he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He gives grace when we yield. He gives grace to the humble, to the surrendered. Humble yourselves, he concludes, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And the mighty hand of God was not, man, we have an abundance of blessings. We just have an overflow of goodness coming our way. It's, this is hard, and we're under the pressure of God's mighty hand. We're being persecuted, marginalized, slandered. And Peter says, endure it. Endure it in a surrendered posture. And in due time, the same God who presses down on you will exalt you. He will exalt you. But he's pressing down for reasons that we don't understand, but he does. Though we have a pretty good idea as to the big reasons. We may not know the minute, why this, why now, but we know what God's doing in all of this, as we'll see. All right. We need to do this especially as we're under... uh, We're under the mighty hand of God, casting in the present all your anxieties on him because all of that mighty hand of God pressure produces anxieties. We cast those on him because rather than him being indifferent towards you or worse, having malice, he cares for you deeply. So as those anxieties come to cast them upon God. So this leads us to the secret to rest. The secret to rest is submission. It's a bad word in our culture. But you know, Jesus Christ was not only the most powerful man that ever walked the earth, the most authoritative man that ever walked the earth, he was also the most submissive man that ever walked the face of the earth. Submission is good. It's what we're wired to do as creatures. When we don't submit, we live outside of our bounds. And we get hurt. We become anxious. All of us are called to submit under the mighty hand of God, under his authority. And so David is doing that, and he's saying here in verse 2, I have calmed and quieted. The, the word, it says but in, in uh, verse 2 of the, the ESV translation I'm using, but it's more like an oath. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like David had to do some work to get here, and he's, he's recognizing that God, surely I've done this. Surely I have acknowledged and I've, I've humbled myself. I have obeyed. I've, I've submitted myself to you deliberately and intentionally, actively. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. It's such a beautiful picture. It's the opposite of Psalm 42 and 43, where we see the refrain where there the psalmist is wrestling with his own soul. And he says, why are you in turmoil? which literally means noisy and loud within me. Why are you so frustrated? And why are you wrestling so much? Hope in the Lord. Well, David's done that wrestling. He's, at, he's, in, he's interrogated his soul graciously, I would think, as a good shepherd like David was, 
most of the time. He shepherded himself, I'm sure, with, with the same care and mercy and compassion that God shepherded him. So I don't think it's his interrogation like, what's wrong with you? But more like, why are you so upset? Why are you in such an uproar? Don't you know God is for you? He's with you. Oh, my soul, rest in him. Take, take, take your comfort in him. And he's reached the point of being weaned. Now, the weaning, how many of you remember being weaned? Do you remember how hard it was? No, we, none of us remember that. It was, it was really hard. It was probably one of the greatest difficulties we had faced yet in our lives was being weaned. It was painful. It was hard. Like the thing we thought we needed was, was sort of being taken away from us. And we were frantic. But we survived. Somehow we survived. Yeah? Likewise, David's been through that process of being weaned. And he's like, I'm at peace now with God. I'm not clamoring and frantic. I can rest. Even on, like a child on its mother's chest. The very place where the child is going to be rooting around, right? That's unweaned. The child is actually at peace, even when hungry. It's a beautiful picture of what soul rest looks like. But it's a hard-learned secret. It's a hard-earned process, this weaning. And it is a secret. That's what Paul calls it, because I think Paul gives his version of David's description in his letter to the Philippians. On the screen, you'll see it from Philippians chapter 4. He's speaking about financial support for the mission, but he wants to be clear he's not speaking as a needy person who's desperate in his need. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know what it is to be brought to the basement of my soul. He knows, because we read about it in other letters. I was brought to the point of despair, he said, where I even despaired of life itself. Paul knows the depths that we talked about last week. He knows the depths. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know when life is flourishing and all is golden. And in, every, in, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Even when I'm hurting, I know contentment. Even when I'm grieving, I can seek and find contentment in my grief. Even in my struggle, I can find contentment. How? How can he do this? Well, he, he answers it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And there's the proper context for that verse. It's not about the ability to throw a football, though that's true. God helps us throw footballs, I suppose. It is the ability to be content no matter what our circumstances. That is, the divi that is divine strength. Throwing a perfect pass is nice, but this is impressive. Right? To be content no matter what the circumstances. That is divine and the sure sign of the divine life at work in us. David, or David and Paul learned that secret. 
Now, when you and I hear about contentment, we think of only two scenarios. There's two possibilities. If someone says, I'm totally content with my life, like I have no turmoil, I have no anxious longings, I have no like reaching and, you know, like desperation, I'm just, I'm just content. Two possibilities that we can imagine. One, you have everything you need and everything you want. You're killing it on every level of life. You're absolutely winning at life. You are the Instagram star, congratulations. You have conquered the world, right? That's one. The other is you just have little ambition. You don't want much. You're content with little because you're content with little. But Paul fits neither of those categories. There's a lot of longings that are unmet for him, a lot of desires. There's a lot of things that are difficult for him. And he's certainly not a small man with small ambitions. Paul's ambitions, as described in this very letter, were cosmic. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What Paul's saying is, I want to defeat death itself and live forever in eternal divine glory. How's that? Am I asking too much? His ambitions couldn't be higher. No, Paul understood the secret of contentment wasn't either having all of your needs and desires met nor just having lowered expectations. Neither one. The secret is in knowing hope, which is what the psalmist calls Israel to in verse 3. Oh, Israel, hope. You have grounds for hope, good basis for hope, so hope. And it's not just hope despite your sufferings. Like Paul says to the Romans, he says, now that we have peace with God, we hope in the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which is a future who hopes for what they already have. We're hoping for what we don't have yet. So you can get this image that Paul just says, I can suffer through anything because I know the good is coming. The pie in the sky will somehow make up for all this loss. That is what a lot of us imagine Christianity says. It is not what Paul teaches. Paul does not see hope as despite your current misery. You just got to despise it, deal with it, suck it up, get through it, and then you'll have your reward. Paul says, no, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Why would you do that? Well, he tells us, because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And what does character build? Hope. My suffering actually builds my hope. As I turn to the Lord, as I cast my anxieties on Him, my suffering actually builds my hope. It strengthens my hope rather than take away from it. It is how Paul shares in the resurrection power of Christ. I share in his death. As I taste death in my loss, in my sufferings, in my hardships, I participate in his resurrection power. It builds my hope. Hoping in God requires humbly waiting on him submitting to his hand in faith, yielding to his timetable, which is not ours, yielding to his design, surrendering to his wisdom for us. It trusts that 
to quote Lamentations, the Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him, it is good that one should wait quietly upon the Lord. Do you know what that word quietly is rendered in the German Bible? Gelassenheit. As I wait quietly on the Lord, He meets me in my weaned state. <laughs> or we sang it, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Not screaming like an unweaned child, but silent, calm. Such hope has faith in the Father like a dependent child. A weaned child is autonomous on one sense, but still dependent. Do you guys remember this scene from the Gospels on the screen from Matthew's Gospel? At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're still jockeying for position and status. They're still anxious, trying to live outside their bounds. I want to be great. Well, you're not that great. So be good, and I will make you great. Right? So who's going to be greatest? How can we get there? And Jesus, I love Jesus. Jesus always does this sort of thing. He, go, he goes and calls a child. We can safely assume a weaned child. Puts the child before them and says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, and that word there is important, because you're not there yet. Unless you convert from a year, we're all pretending to be adults, right? Like we're all faking it till we make it. Until you realize your dependent status and turn like this child and surrender to your heavenly father, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You must humbly accept this yoke of mine if you are to find rest for your soul. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus compares this to children, the, the, the recipients of the kingdom of children, not because Jesus has a, a romantic ideal of children as little angels who are innocent, but because children are dependent. And they're wired to depend. We are hardwired to depend on mom and dad, even when they break our trust. We're hardwired for it. We're wired to look to our Heavenly Father and say, I don't know, I need you, I depend on you, I rest in your everlasting arms. You are good, you are safe, <laughs> you are true. Remember that old Baptist hymn, Perfect Submission? That phrase would always rub me wrong. Perfect submission. You know, it's a... <laughs> all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. It may be corny, but it's true. Here's another hymn from an unknown, but a Quaker sister named Anna Waring. Listen to what she wrote. I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro, seeking from some great thing to do or secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. Would you be treated as a child, guided where you go? Will you depend upon him? Will you rest your anxious heart in his good and sovereign hands? Let me invite you now to convert and become like a child. 
Come to Jesus' easy yoke. He calls to you, all who are tired and weary, come to me and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And there, submitting yourself under my yoke, you will find rest for your souls. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this kind word and this challenging word to us that we would be people marked by a tranquil surrender, a submitted peace, knowing who we are. We are creatures with limits, and more than that, through Jesus Christ, we are sons and daughters who are dearly loved in your hands. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking ourselves adults in your kingdom. I can do it myself mentality. Help us, Lord, to trust in you and to rest in you, we pray.